0: Take our Bibles and begin to uh, get them used to opening to a new place. First Thessalonians. By the end of these series, they kind of seem to fall open there. First Thessalonians. Pastor Eric got us started last Sunday with a really good overview of some of the big themes. For Thessalonians is one of many letters in the New Testament. You know, to keep it simple, we often refer to the 66 books of the Bible. But they aren't, you know, most of them aren't books in the Barnes and Noble sense. A bunch of chapters in the cover. And um, and this one, like several, especially in the New Testament, is, is a letter 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1, begins, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. So Paul is the Apostle Paul, the last of the Apostles. Silvanus was usually called by the the shorter version of, of Silvanus, which is Silas. And Silas and Timothy were teammates who traveled with Paul And helped him so it says the letters from the three of them and consistently through the letter with just one slight exception in the middle and then one at the end uh, the letter is spoken in the plural we but when you get to the very end chapter 5 verse 27 Paul says I put you under oath to have this letter read to all the brothers and so that's a reminder for us that ultimately The authority of the letter came from the Apostle Paul as his role as an apostle. They were witnesses of the resurrection. They were specially entrusted with the truth about Jesus. So God inspired this letter from this apostle to be part of Scripture. It had authority not just for that church family in that moment, but it has God's authority for all of us. So speaking of that church family, verse 1 continues... Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians. So this letter was to the gathering of professing followers of Jesus in the city of Thessalonica. Um, More about that in just a second. This was probably the year A.D. 50 or so, Um, part of the reason why we're in 1 Thessalonians is because we already studied Galatians, which is probably the earliest New Testament epistle, and uh, 1 Thessalonians probably comes next. So about 17 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. And as a letter, this would have been written eagerly and maybe even quickly by the Apostle Paul. Maybe he worked on it for a few days, maybe even a couple of weeks Maybe he dictated it all in one sitting. Uh, we don't know. But it wasn't like a book that an author might work on for a few years. We know from the calendar of Paul's life now that didn't happen. This was a letter from a particular moment in time, and Paul was surely very eager to get it written and uh, to get it sent. So what we want to do now is, is just kind of get some of the background and especially understand the moment in time that led up to this letter Uh, I want to pause and pray first. Father, we look to you as the author of the word, the God who has spoken, and the God whose words are our life, our very means of spiritual sustenance. So as we start into this new study, oh, would you bless it? Would you help us? Would you take the word and let it be alive in our hearts and may we come out of Thessalonians changed and having grown and loving these books like we do time after time in these studies. Help us today as we get this background. May we see your heart for your people and may we understand the transformation you work in us by the gospel. So please help now in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the best way to understand the moment of time when this was written is to look at a map. So the lines on here show Paul's first missionary journey, which began over where you see that star. Uh, You see Antioch over there, Syrian Antioch, we usually call that. And so Paul went from there up into the middle of uh, modern-day Turkey, and then he came back out, and you can see that Paul didn't go to Thessali- Thessalonica on the first missionary journey. If you find Thessalonica further over there on the map, um, but from this map we can see where it is and uh, and where it still is, to, where it was, and where it still is today. Uh, it was up there in what we call Greece today. Back then, the Roman province of Macedonia. Thessalonica was actually the capital of the province of Macedonia, and it was in a pretty sweet spot um, right up at the tip of that inlet of the Aegean Sea. So here it is from the satellite view today. It sits on a well-protected natural harbor in a lush area. If we zoom out a little bit more, you can see the thumb of the Aegean Sea that kind of sticks up in there and gives them this really great protected harbor. Zoom out a little bit more. There's where it sits in modern-day Greece. By the way, on this map, notice that over uh, to the east, you see a little, Google has put a little heart over there, uh, and that is because in Google Maps I have marked the location of the apartment of our missions partners in Istanbul, uh, because they are precious to us. And Google somehow you know, spies on us so much that it knows how much we love them, and it put a heart on my map. Uh, but that is an important place, because that is ancient Byzantium, which became Constantinople, which today we we refer to as Istanbul. That's right where Europe and Asia meet. That's right where the Bosporus Strait comes through, from the Black Sea down into the Marmara and the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean. Uh, So that is a very important place. So Thessalonica was a capital city. It was a very important commercial city. And that wasn't just because it had this great harbor on the sea. It was also because of the roads that went through the city. So the red line on this... Uh, map is the Ign- Ignatian Way. That's the road that connected the Western Roman Empire, well, with a, b- a brief boat trip, as you can see there on the, on the blue dotted line, but the road that connected the West Rome to, you see Byzantium up there, Byzantium, Istanbul, and, and then beyond. So that was an extremely important road east-west in the Roman Empire, and you can see here that Thessalonica was right on that road. Uh, You also see the little green dotted lines coming coming down from Thessalonica. That means that there was a major north-south route that also went through the city, uh, which would take you down into the rest of Greece. And so even though it wasn't a large city by modern standards, maybe it was sixty to 100,000 people back then, it was the largest city in its province, the capital of its province, and very influential. Okay, so... Back to our map of the first missionary journey. On that trip, Paul started several churches in several cities in the middle of modern-day Turkey. So this region right in here. And the reason why I want to show this on the map is because the route Paul took here begins to illustrate the kind of heart Paul had that led to the writing of 1 Thessalonians. Notice that Paul was in Derby. Remember, Paul was from Tarsus. So from Derby to get back home, first of all, there's a short route. And second of all, the short route takes him through his hometown. So we would surely expect that on that missionary journey, Paul would have just continued on from Derby through Tarsus and back home to Antioch. But, as you can see from the map, that's not what he did. He got up there to Derby, and he turned around, and he actually went back the other direction. That was a beautiful arrow. Why did he go back the other direction? And remember, several of those places through there were dangerous. He got run out of town. They wanted to hurt him. They might have even wanted to kill him. And so to go back through there was not safe, but he went back because he was not the kind of church planter who could just easily move on and let somebody else worry about those new Christians. He cared for them too much. He loved them like a father at the risk of being a little tacky. That part of the map shows Paul's heart, and it is the same heart that results in the letter of Thessalonians. So, Paul started at. Now, let's go to the second missionary journey. Okay, so new map, second missionary journey. Once again, Paul starts in Antioch. He goes a different route, but where does he go? Right back to those same churches. That's his third time with those churches because he loved those brothers and sisters in Christ so much and he knew the hard things they were going through. And so just like the last map, this map shows Paul's heart and it's the heart that results in this letter that we're about to start studying. So take your Bible and let's go to Acts 15 and we're going to jump into the story now. Having checked on those churches in Turkey, Paul continued on to the west, and for our purposes today, we want to note three especially important places, and that will be Philippi, and then Thessalonica, and then Corinth. Okay, Acts 15, last two verses, tell us about the beginning of the second missionary journey. Acts 15, 40, Paul chose Silas, remember that's Silvanus of 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1. Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. In other words, his home church in Antioch sent them out on this mission trip. Verse 41, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, and what was he doing? strengthening the churches. Okay, so that's what we were just talking about back up here on the map. That's Syria and Cilicia. That's this first part of the trip where he's going back, visiting those churches. Now, chapter 16, verse 1, Paul also came to Derby, and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Okay, so again, remember, Thessalonians is from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. So Paul and Silas started on this missionary journey, and when they came through Lystra, they picked up Timothy. So now he's added as a team member. Verse 5, Acts 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Now, if you look back on the map, Paul continues then, He wishes he could do ministry in this area, but God will not allow him to do that. So he continues on until he gets to Troas, chapter 16, verse 9. So now he's on the Aegean Sea, chapter 16, verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia. So where's Macedonia? That's the state, right, that that Thessalonica is the capital of a man of Macedonia was standing there in this vision Paul has at night, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So God gave Paul this vision of someone saying, you got to come over to this province and help us because they needed the good news of Jesus Christ, which at this point in history had possibly never been preached in the province of Macedonia. That ought to make us say, wow, <laughs> to remember that there were times when in these parts of the world nobody knew about Jesus and his death and resurrection, or very few did. So they took a ship across that top of the Aegean Sea, and they came, first of all, to Philippi. And people were saved, and a church was started in Philippi, but Paul and Silas and Timothy were also beaten and also imprisoned. You may know the story of the Philippian jailer and the miracle God did that night. And Paul and Silas and Timothy had to leave town. They were forced to leave town. So then they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. It doesn't sound like they stopped to do ministry in them. And they came to Thessalonica, about 90 miles to the west. So Keep your spot in Acts 16. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Alright, 1 Thessalonians 2. Now, Paul's going to refer to the fact that that they came from Philippi to Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 1, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul is telling them that it wasn't easy to keep going to Thessalonica. After what happened at Philippi, it would have been easiest to pack up and go home, or at least just go quiet. But God gave them boldness, not only to keep going to the capital city of Thessalonica, but when they got there and discovered much conflict, God gave them the boldness to declare the gospel anyways, even though they knew this might end up like it did in Philippi. So this was not an easy church plant. But God was strengthening them. Now, back to Acts. Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, verse 1. Now... When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, so this is on the trip from Philippi over, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So we know that whenever possible, Paul started his evangelism with the Jews to make sure they had the opportunity to hear about Jesus as their Messiah who had come. So that's where they began in Thessalonica. Verse 4, And some of them were persuaded, some of the Jews were persuaded, and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So some Jews were persuaded and believed in Jesus. But they were the minority in light of the great many devout Greeks who believed. Devout Greeks would be those Gentiles who would come to the Jewish synagogue, were interested in the God of the Jews, but never fully converted to Judaism. But they did fully convert to Christianity. So you might think of it like this. Uh, If our room represents the Jewish synagogue, And the majority of you, like let's say the whole middle section and this whole section, you're all Jews. And when Paul came and preached, there were a few people from among those Jews who believed in Jesus as Messiah. But over here, actually in the back, you have these these God-fearing Gentiles who are interested in the God of Israel. They're attending the synagogue. Many of them believed in Jesus, along with a few, uh, some from among the Jews. And then verse four says, and not a few of the leading women, which is probably referring to the wives of important leaders in the city of Thessalonica. So how's that for a start for a church plant? Three weeks preaching in the synagogue, and what you have is a number of Jews who got saved, many more god fearing Gentiles who got saved, and some of the most important influential women in the city. And yet, you can start to sense the double trouble that was coming. Because the Jews were going to be upset because they were losing people to this Jesus movement and the important leaders in the city were going to be upset because their wives were excited about this Jesus thing. So it was an exciting and it was a risky start for this new church. And Paul would have begun right away to teach those baby Christians and to gather them into a church family. How long was he there? We don't know three Sabbath days at the very, very, very minimum, so a little more than two weeks. It could well have been a few months that he was there. We know that later in the letter, Paul's going to tell us that he worked full-time to support himself and his team financially while he was there. So that's one of the reasons why he probably wasn't just there two weeks, probably a few months. And it is important to picture Paul working. Um, And we don't know exactly what it would have looked like, but one thing that's very likely is that there was a market in Thessalonica and that Paul set up a booth in the market where he did his leatherworking, his tent making, that was his skill. Can you picture that? If you picture Paul with a booth in the market doing that work, what else is happening in that booth? New Christians are coming, right? He's teaching them. He's explaining things. He's helping them grow in the Lord. And he's doing evangelism, right? Telling people about Jesus. So there he is working because he was working night and day, he says. So you know that that workshop was also a place of ministry while he's, you know, sewing, sewing calfskins. And then his ministry also would have expanded into the homes of some of those new believers. Surely you would have had people who were like, hey, Paul, come to a Bible study at my house. Hey, Paul, let's gather at, at my house. Let me invite my friends to hear more about this. And we actually know the name of one of those people because he's mentioned in the very next frightening scene here in Acts 17, verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, And attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Can you try to feel a little bit of what that was like for Jason, for these other believers? Jason had heard the good news of Jesus. He believed it. He got excited about it. He invited Paul into his house probably to do, you know, Bible studies or something like that. And the next thing you know, the SWAT team, or actually the mob of unemployed guys from the town square that they that they riled up, raids his house to try to hurt or maybe even kill the Apostle Paul and his team. And when that didn't work, they dragged Jason and some of his Christian brothers out in the street and were yelling, These men say there's another king, Jesus. Now remember, Thessalonica was a Roman capital. It was a prosperous city with a great, a great relationship to the government. The last thing they wanted was somebody to go back to Rome and say, hey, did you hear there's a new king in Thessalonica? I would not go over well. And so, verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. You see that here on the map? Now, it's not our place to judge whether they should have done that or not. It was a scary and it was a dangerous situation, and they may have just been trying to keep Paul safe. But regardless, how do you think it felt for Paul and Silvanus and Timothy? Can you picture that? Can you feel that? They come into town. They just came from Thessalonica where they were terribly treated and hurt. They get, I mean, they just came from Philippi They get to Thessalonica, God gives them the strength, they go for it anyways, they preach in the synagogue, and whoa, people are getting saved. Jews are getting saved, Gentiles are getting saved, important people in town are getting saved. Now they set up, they're working in the marketplace, they're doing Bible studies, they're doing discipleship, they're teaching people, more people are getting saved. And the next thing you know, there's this raid, and the whole city is against them, yelling, threatening. The new baby Christians are dragged out into the street, and then those Christians say to Paul, you've got to go. Well, if we want to know what it felt like, Paul tells us a little bit. If we go, st- stay in Acts. Oh, no, we're done in Acts. Go to, back to First Thessalonians 2. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17. He says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart. So that's what it was like. It was like being torn away. It was like a ripping apart. But see what he says, they couldn't be ripped apart in heart. I left my heart in Thessalonica, he says, with those brothers and sisters. And so that's why the rest of verse 17 says, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, there's one of the places where he's, the other place where he switches to the singular. I, Paul, again and again, but... Satan hindered us. So when Paul had to leave town, he thought, I'm going back as soon as I can. I'm going to get right back there. But somehow Satan kept preventing it, and they couldn't get back. They couldn't go back. So, chapter 3, verse 1 Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. Okay? So, back on our map, Paul was run out of Philippi, and he went to Thessalonica, right? And then he was run out of Thessalonica and he went to Berea and he, he hoped to turn around and go right back up, but Satan got in the way. So he served in Berea for a little while, but then he got run out of Berea. And again, maybe he hoped he could go back up, but he couldn't. So he kept going south and he, he, he went by sea down to Athens. Athens. And at that point, he just couldn't take it. (laughs) There were no phones. There were no emails. There was no way for him to know how those brand new Christians in Thessalonica were doing. So Paul had to send Timothy back up to check on them. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith And our labor would be in vain. Paul was afraid that they were going to abandon Christianity. That Satan was going to trick them or Satan was going to pressure them right out of their faith. Do you know what it's like to spiritually fear for someone whom you dearly love? To be apart from them and badly wish you could be there because of your deep spiritual concern for them? To wonder if their faith is surviving what they're going through? That's where Paul was at. But when Timothy came back, he brought good news. Chapter 3, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news... Of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. So Timothy came back with a very encouraging report. The Thessalonians were standing firm in, in faith and love, and Paul was overjoyed, and that's when Paul wrote the letter. That's the moment. So if you look back at our map again, uh, Paul probably wrote the letter from Corinth. He was, in, he was in Athens when he sent Timothy up, but then Paul continued on to Corinth. He didn't stay in Athens long. And so by the time Timothy came back, Paul was uh, in Corinth. So the letter was almost surely written from Corinth to uh, Thessalonica. Right after Timothy came back with such a good report. The baby church in Thessalonica was still alive. Those new believers were still standing firm. Chapter 3, verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we might see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Man, he wants to get back, doesn't he? So you see there is a mix of emotions. Like verse 9, he's just really excited to hear that they were still standing firm in Christ. Verse 10, but he was praying for them and he knew that their faith still needed to grow a lot. In verse 11, he longed to see them again and praying God would allow that. But in the meantime, he could write them a letter. And so he grabbed a pen. Or probably, based on some of the other things we've seen, like in Galatians, probably he did not like the writing. So probably he had somebody else grab a pen and, and he, he started talking. And he dictated this eager letter. He, he wanted to write them to encourage them, as Pastor Eric showed us so well last Sunday. He wanted to write them to teach them we're also going to see evidence in the letter that they probably sent some questions back down with Timothy. And Paul was probably trying to answer some of their questions. And as he wrote, God was guiding that writing to be the very words of God, not only for them, but also for us. Okay, so we have seen the the setting or the moment in time. We have seen... And and that was when Paul had been ripped away from the Thessalonians so soon after the church was started. And then Timothy came back with that report. That's the moment in time. And we've also seen the heart behind this letter. The heart was Paul's love for these new churches and young believers. That's why he wrote. And so, like Galatians, 1 Thessalonians is really passionate. Both books have the heart of a parent. But And maybe I'm a little generalizing, but in Galatians, it's mostly a fighting heart, like warring for his spiritual children, standing up to opponents and fighting for the truth of the gospel. Here in Thessalonians, it's mostly a tender heart, caring for these infants in the faith who have been born again into a world of temptation and persecution. It's a fantastic letter, and I'm so glad we're started into it. So uh, something else that's interesting we don't just have one letter to the Thessalonians, right? We have two. And so with two letters, we actually have three windows into this little church, which makes it just especially instructive and and kind of fun for us to study. There's the Acts 17 window when the church was planted. There's the 1 Thessalonians window a few months later when Paul writes them. And then there's the 2 Thessalonians letter. And one of the challenges with 2 Thessalonians is that we're not sure when it was written some people actually think 2 Thessalonians is 1 Thessalonians, <laughs> that it came first. Um, not certain. But regardless, we get three glimpses into this church, and that is just super cool and, and, and makes, makes it really interesting. All right, so we're going to finish up this morning by looking at what I'm calling the evidence that resulted in thanksgiving. So, uh, have you gotten any news recently Whether big or small, that made you really grateful to God. Like you found yourself saying to God, Thank you so much for that. Uh, Some of you have heard my story already. I won't tell it now. But I did a couple stupid things a few weeks ago uh, in the middle of nowhere in our truck and almost caused massive problems. And in God's mercy, I didn't. Uh, Not because of me, but because He was merciful. And that may sound like a little thing to you, but it was not a little thing in my heart. And man, was I grateful to God for that over and over and over again. I thanked him and journaled about what he was doing in my heart and his, his mercy to me. So we need to understand that when we begin reading First Thessalonians, Paul's heart is there. He's like, man, I have got so much I am so grateful for. I just keep thanking God And so I want us to finish this morning by talking about what it was that he was thanking God about. And we're going to see it, especially at the beginning of chapter 1. But it's here in chapter 3, since we're already there. Chapter 3, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love. And then in verse 8. Now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Three things Paul was excited about their faith, their love, and that they were standing fast. And I know verse 8 doesn't exactly say they were standing fast, but what's Paul's, what Paul's saying there is they are standing fast, and they need to continue. Um, so three things that made Paul really grateful. Their faith, their love, and they were standing fast. Now, keep those in mind. Go back to chapter 1, and we see the exact same things. Slightly different wording. Chapter 1 verses 1 through 3, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God, in other words, not failing to thank God for your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul did not fail to repeatedly thank God for their faith and love and their steadfastness of hope. He knew what really mattered. More than their wealth, more than their jobs, more than their comfort, more than their reputation, more than their success, it meant the world to him to know that those baby Christians were continuing in faith. And love and steadfastness. In other words, Paul longed to know if the gospel had truly changed them because eternity is at stake in that. Had they truly become a new creation in Christ? We've got to understand this. That's the issue. The issue is not on a scale of one to ten, are you are you a five and a half or a six? The issue is on a scale of dead or alive spiritually, are you dead or alive? That's the question. They had made a profession of faith in Christ, and we rejoice when people make a profession of faith in Christ. But frankly, folks, do you realize making a profession of faith in Christ, we say that person got saved, but that's not quite what we mean. What we mean is that person made a profession of faith in Christ, and we hope that that means they got born again. But the Bible makes it clear there is such a thing as false professions, And so an even greater cause for rejoicing comes over time as we see the fruit of true salvation because the gospel is changing someone. Because we see the gospel changing us. That's what really causes rejoicing. So let's just consider those three phrases as we finish up this morning. Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Those phrases describe the gospel transformation in the life of a true Christian. They are, in a sense, the essence of gospel transformation, boiled down to just those three phrases. So it has that triad of faith, love, and hope that is very common in the New Testament. Some of you know that, that uh, Crystal and I are very bad at naming babies. And when we were getting ready to have Nadia, we were just taking like, public surveys about what she ought to be named because we're just so bad at it. And somebody jokingly suggested that we name her Faith, Hope, Love Grove, you know, so that we would have all three. And so through a sequence of things that happened after that, we did it. Because Nadia means hope, and her middle name is Faith. So she is actually Hope, Faith, Love, Grove. Nadia, Faith, Love, Grove. So those three, they're all over the New Testament, multiple authors. And if you had to boil the heart of a Christian down to just three things, it would be faith, love, and hope. Now you know those words, they're familiar, but just wait. Think about the world we live in. Think about how messed up it is. Think about how dark the headlines are. Think about how depressed and anxious most people are. And then think about faith, love, and hope. Those things change your life. Those things make you a really wonderful person to be around. You become a beacon of light in the midst of the darkness because faith and hope and love can't just stay inside you. They come out. They change you. So faith and hope and love were shining out of the Thessalonians. And Paul was like, yes, they're born again! Because there it is. The gospel was changing them. And so the grammar in these three phrases seems to mean that the work, the labor, and the steadfastness came out of the faith, the love, and the hope. Because remember, faith and love and hope don't stay in you. They come out of you. When the gospel is changing you, you work because of your faith. You labor because of your love. And you are steadfast because of your hope. The gospel produces, and here are the phrases that help me most, work motivated by faith, labor motivated by love, steadfastness motivated by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. And that summarizes the authentic Christian life. So as Paul was torn from the Thessalonians and he wondered, was it all in vain? Are they just going to dump Jesus now? Did God truly save them? When Timothy came back and reported work motivated by faith, labor motivated by love and steadfastness motivated by hope, Paul went through the roof. He was so excited. And he didn't just go through the roof. His prayers went through the roof (laughs) in gratitude to God for that. All right, so the three phrases, work motivated by faith. We are saved by faith, not by any of our works. And yet, saving faith always results in works. As we saw Paul say in Galatians, faith works through love. When you actually trust God, you can't remain the same old person that you've always been when you trust God. You know, you never cared about the Bible before, but now you want to learn. You want to listen to somebody you trust. You never prayed before unless you were desperately in trouble. But now you find yourself wanting to pray to someone whom you trust. Football was always the center of your Sunday. But now you you still like football, but you like your church family more. You love God more. You never talked about religion before, but now you really want your family and friends to know about Jesus. He's so good. You never really were bothered by some little lies here and there, twisting the truth, cutting corners, a little bit of cheating. But now you've got this growing desire for integrity in your life. What's going on? Faith is working in you, and faith is working out of you. When you start trusting God, life starts changing. So the first characteristic of a true follower of Jesus here is work motivated by faith. The second is labor motivated by love. And at first glance, it, labor and work sound very similar. Um, and they are. But the second word here seems to emphasize the discomfort or the hardship of the labor. And here, it's, this time, it's connected to love. So this is almost surely referring to love for other people. Hard, dis- uncomfortable labor because you love other people. So when God saves you, he plants into your heart the seeds of his love. And those seeds begin to grow. And so in areas of your life where you were just happily selfish before, there's this unselfish love that begins to grow. Where you used to only love other people because it was convenient or it was easy or you could get whatever you wanted, you know, whatever you could get from them. You start loving people who don't give you anything in return. People don't have any way to pay you back for your love. You begin to love not just in word, but in deed and in truth, and even when it's exhausting and even when it's costly. What's going on? Love is working in you and working out of you. And then the final characteristic of gospel transformation here is steadfastness of hope, steadfastness that is motivated by hope. As we've seen today, following Jesus was costly for the Thessalonians right away, physically, financially, financially. Relationally, it was costly. Jesus himself said that sometimes when people hear the word of God and respond to it, they then immediately fall away when tribulation or persecution arises. He said they've got no roots. So they make a profession. They respond well to the word. But as soon as there's tribulation or persecution, they're done. So why didn't that happen in Thessalonica? What rooted them so that when the whole city turned against them, they stayed steadfast? And Paul's answer is hope. Not just optimism, but steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hope in a person and in his perfect promises. This hope in this book is partly the confidence that Jesus is going to come again. That Jesus has given me eternal life. That Jesus loves me. And that the sufferings of this life are temporary, and they're going to be worth it. Jesus and all of the apostles promised it. That's why the early Christians, Acts 5, verse 41, they considered it a privilege to be counted worthy to suffer dishonor in the name of Christ. Privilege, they said. Jesus himself said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Peter said that if you are grieved by various trials now, for a little while... If necessary, in the end, you'll receive praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul longed to know Jesus in the fellowship of his sufferings. He wrote that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed to us. He was certain that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That is such a mouthful. Let me Here's how the New Living Translation paraphrases that. Our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So that hope, that hope in the person of Christ and the certain promises of God produces steadfastness. That's how you handle getting dragged out in the middle of the street with the whole city against you. Now, you can know that the work of faith and the labor of love and the steadfastness of hope in the Thessalonians was immature. Don't hear what I'm saying this morning and say, wow, they were like super Christians and I could never be like that. They were not super Christians. Paul said, I am so desperate to get there because i gotta, I got to fill up what's lacking in your faith. So their hope was Immature. <laughs> It had a whole lot of growing to do. Their love, he's going to say later in the book, you're doing a good job, but you've got to keep growing more and more in your love. Their faith, man, it was exciting, but it was lacking. It had a lot more growing. So don't picture some kind of like strangely two months they're saved and they're super Christians kind of people. That's not what's going on here. They were, they were like little plants, feebly growing, yet they were really, truly growing by the grace of God. So, what if you're listening this morning and you realize that faith and hope and love don't really characterize your heart and haven't changed your life? Then just come to Christ as your Savior and King today. If you come to Him as a sinner in need of a Savior and a rebel in need of a King, He will save you, and He will plant those seeds of faith and hope and love inside you. And if you do see those marks of authentic Christianity growing in your life, even like a feeble little plant, even if you're like, I'm so lacking in those things. Thank the Lord for it. Actually come to God in thanks and tell Him how grateful you are. And if you see it in other people, thank the Lord for His work in them. That's what Paul's doing here. And then consider this. Here's homework. You can go work on. How could your faith motivate your work? How could your work be motivated by faith? What's the connection? How would trusting God lead you to work, to the good works God has called you to in your life and in your situation, your circumstances right now? How could your faith motivate your work? Then ask yourself, how could my love for God and and then God's love for other people how could my love motivate the kind of labor I don't want to do? I want to be selfish. I want to be comfortable. How could love motivate labor, sacrificial love, sacrificial labor for others? And then how could hope motivate steadfastness and standing firm when I want to just give in and just go with the world, and the sinful temptations? What would hope, how would hope motivate me? That's a great project, journaling, writing project for you to do in response to this. Father, we give thanks to you because we know, as this passage makes clear, that all of the things that this passage describes, if they're in our hearts, they came from you. Thank you for giving us faith and love and hope. And may you grant the desire of the hearts of your people that those things which are in us would grow, that faith and love and hope would grow, but also that those things which are in us would come out of us and motivate work and labor and steadfastness and shine, shine in this darkness for your glory. That is the desire of our hearts. Would you grant that to us? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.